0: In 2018, I interviewed Valentino Dixon. He had been out of prison for just 29 days after serving almost three decades for a crime they knew he didn't commit from the first moment. There was no need to prosecute him. There was no need to arrest him. He had alibis. I mean, it's crazy. So The good news is some incredible things have been happening for Valentino since he got out and since he recorded his episode of Wrongful Conviction that you're about to hear. In 2019, he had his first art show, his solo art show in New York City. And since then, it's taken off. He was a guest of the PGA at the Masters Championship, where he famously told Tiger Woods in the Butler Cabin, he said, you're gonna win. And you know what happened? He won. The pictures from that trip were extraordinary. Valentino has traveled the world, uh, been to golf courses all over the place. He's become a favorite among the top PGA players, and his art has been selling like hotcakes. I hope you get a chance to check it out. He's also got a line of greeting cards that's extraordinary, and Valentino is just like a beacon of light. I mean, this guy, he... Drop some knowledge on this episode that is just like verbal gold and spiritual gold. He is an extraordinary, extraordinary man. I'm, I'm honored to be presenting to you my episode of Wrongful Conviction with Valentino Dixon.
1: Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry.
3: I've never been in trouble in my life. I didn't even have a parking ticket, I didn't, you know what I mean? I I was brought up like cops are the, the good guys.
4: I didn't know what was gonna happen, but I do know that everything was stacked
1: against me. Everything, like everything.
4: This isn't supposed to happen this way. I'm innocent. I know I'm innocent. I know I had nothing to do with this. How is this possible? I grew up trusting
3: the systems. I grew up believing that Every human being should do the right thing. And that's why, even though I knew I was dealing with corrupt people, I wasn't going to bribe anyone to get me out of prison. Because I wouldn't live with the fact that I bribed my way out of my wife's death.
1: I'm not innocent until proven guilty. I'm guilty until I prove my innocence, and that's absolutely what happened to me.
3: Our system, since I've been out 10 years, it's come a little ways, but it's still broken. I totally lost trust in humanity after what happened to me.
0: Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction. Um, I am extremely excited today to have somebody who I admire greatly, uh, Valentino Dixon. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So Valentino was released from prison, declared actually innocent 29 days ago um, after having been in since uh, 1991. Yeah. And we are in two thousand eighteen, that's right, that's what they tell me, <laughs> yeah, so um that's a long, long time, yes, yeah. yes, it is for a crime yeah, it was for a crime that not only didn't you commit, but a crime that everybody knew you didn't commit mm-hmm. from day one because of the simple fact that the actual killer confessed on video All right and I'm here days two days after I was arrested, right, so you know, and I hear myself say that, and I'm like, okay. That can't be. I mean, that doesn't make any logical sense. This and is that, our system. And that wasn't the only time he confessed. But let's go back. Right. I mean, we're talking about a murder case, 70 witnesses. mm mm-hmm. It would seem impossible for this to have happened in a situation like this one. This was not an isolated thing on a on a dusty road somewhere. This was a, a crowded—it uh, was a summer night in, in Buffalo, New York, East Buffalo, right? Yep. And I guess let's go right to it because it's such an incredible story and there's so much to it as mm-hmm. we get to the, the, way that, the way that you got out is as extraordinary as it is unique right. because you basically drew yourself out of prison mm-hmm. with colored pencils I mean, and a lot of help from a lot of different people, yes. including some incredible, incredible students at Georgetown University. Uh, and I have a, a very strong connection there in a lot of ways. So I'm, I'm super excited to be able to meet you and share this experience in person and not behind walls. So um, so let's go back to that fateful – well, it was morning, right? It was early in the morning. It was late one at night, in the morning. morning. Yeah, one in the morning. One in the morning yeah. on August 10th, 1991. Take our audience into—you were you were nearby. Yeah. But I don't—I mean, I know the story, but I want to hear it in your okay. words. Well, I was hanging out with some friends,
4: and um, before I came on the scene, some threats had been made, okay? But it wasn't my issue, so I didn't think a whole lot of it. You know, where I come from, these type of things happen all the time. You know, um, the threats were made. I was aware of it. I went inside the store to get a beer. I'm reaching in the cooler, and I hear pop, pop. <laughs> so instead of staying in the store, I run out of the store. So you knew, what it, you knew what it was right away. Of course. I've heard gunfire before. I come from the worst parts of Buffalo, New York. I'm oh. in a very violent area, drug-infested area. So, uh, you know, gunfire wasn't something that um, was new to me, you know. So I'm in the store reaching to get a beer out, and I hear the pop, pop. The only thing that come in my mind is that Whatever they was talking about just happened. So instead of staying in the store, I ran out of the store to be nosy or whatever, young and stupid. And um, two or three guys, they, you know, engaging in a gunfight, you know. So I run around the gunfight to get to my car, jumps in my car and pulls off. Uh, shortly thereafter, I'm pulled over, uh, handcuffed. And at the time, they told me that they wanted to just interview me. Okay, so I just figured that, or maybe they figured I was a witness, and uh, maybe I had some information. A couple hours later, they charged me with murder, second-degree murder, uh, two assaults, because four people were shot. So in my mind, there's no way that, you know, uh, I'm going to stay in jail for this, because there was too many people out there. A lot of people out there knew me. You know, they knew my face. You know, when you have 60, 70, 80 people out there, uh, there's no way that they can get this wrong. Anyway, um, the guy that committed this crime felt bad about what happened, you know, and the guy that he killed, they actually found his gun at the scene of the crime, you know, but the prosecutor's office uh, said that the gun played no part in the
0: crime. Wait, wait, wait. Okay, hold on. Let's go back to this for a second. So, first of all, you're 21 years old at this time and four people get shot. Right. Toriano Jackson was killed. Yeah, and his
4: brother was shot and uh, Mario Jarman was shot because Tori shot Mario before
0: this guy Lamore ran up and shot Tory and Aaron. You know, he came to Mario's defense. Got it, and, and he, he said, I saw the video where he said that he couldn't control the weapon and it just well, was an automatic from, weapon. Yeah, from where, when I ran down the street towards my car, I actually turned
4: around and the shooting was still going on. You know, Lamore was doing the bulk of the shooting at the time, you know, I could see it from where I was. You know, uh, when the police, you know, pulled me over, of course I said I didn't know who did the shooting. You know, it's, a, it's like a, a cold thing. You know, that's not my business. And they pretty much told me that if I didn't tell them who did the shooting that um I was going down for the shooting. Now, at the time, because I knew it was 70, 80 witnesses, all I need to do is keep my mouth shut and I'm going home because it's other people that's going to tell them what happened. You know, you can't get this wrong. But at the end of the day... Uh, after Lamore confessed, they told him to leave the police station. They um, refused to hold him. Eight or nine witnesses came forth and told the police I didn't do the shooting. They disregarded all of them. I found myself going to
0: trial 10 months later. So you were in jail for these 10 months yeah, waiting trial? No bail. Yeah, no bail. They said, oh, there was, no bail. you were held without bail. Yeah. And even if it had been bailed, you probably wouldn't have been able to bail yeah. out regardless. Right. I mean, you didn't come right. From a wealthy family right. or anything like that. It right. was a whole other situation. I subject. had a public defender. Public defender. And you were the only person arrested for this crime? I was the only person arrested. And did they test you for they gun t- they, residue? They took my
4: clothes. They took my car. And they told me if I fired a weapon, then they would know. There's no way I would have been able to wipe off that much bun- gun powder residue. This is what they told me. Of course not. You just— you Right. Might, I mean, right. It was only a few right. minutes
0: later when you got pulled over. So um,
4: <laughs> I just knew once they took this stuff to the lab or whatever they were going to do with it, that I would be okay. You know but even then with all of those witnesses you know I didn't never uh expect for this guy to come and confess you know that was something that people don't do you know he came and confessed and they kicked him out of the police station and said you know like get out of here we don't believe you okay that's crazy <laughs> you right. know yes, it's it's, it's
0: it's you can't make this stuff up what but Valentino, what I mean what could have you've had 20 almost 30 years to think about this yeah. right the better part yeah. of three decades to think yeah. about this What could they possibly have been thinking if they had the actual killer? First of all, it was equal. You know, when
4: you have eagles and and, um, careers on the line, you know, and you don't want to admit that you made a mistake. You know, I'm a young black guy from the hood with no money. We don't even have to say that we made a mistake here. We're just going to go through this process and convict him. But this wasn't a particularly high profile case. We know right? that, right. You know, no, it wasn't. You know, but um, for whatever reason, the, the prosecutor at the time, you know, he was this guy was, you know, criminal. I call him a, a criminal. You know, in fact, he was. The DA's office is not saying right now that they fired this guy. You know, they fired him, and uh, even when I was released, these faxes never came out. They kicked him out of the office. You know, he even admitted that, you know, he could have made a mistake in my case six, seven years ago, that he's only human. But I still sat in prison. You know, it's just a matter of, like, how do you, like, when you see these guys with women to 10, 20, 30, 40 years and maybe 30 years and for wrongful conviction, you say, how did it get to this point? And it got to this point because nobody wants to take... Responsibility, and, and, you know, and I, I guess they look at it as we'll let the next judge and the next prosecutor fix it. And next thing you know, you have 10, 20, 30 years in when the evidence existed from day one.
0: Right. But going back, the thing about your case that's so maddening and confusing and just inexplicable.
4: Don't try to don't try to figure it out, Jason. There's no there's no way to. Um, there's nothing to figure out here. This is this is our system, and if what? you come up against a bad prosecutor or a couple of bad cops, then this is what's going to happen. People I, are human beings, and this you know you have
0: some bad apples in the system. I'm, I'm right with you, and I'm picking up what you're putting down. But yeah. having been doing this for 25 years now, and having been I mean, right. we're in seventh season of the right. show, so I've, we've gotten in, in real granular detail with so many people who are wrongfully convicted, mm-hmm. like yourself. And, you know, just when I think I've heard every story, mm-hmm. of course, somebody like you comes along and right. I'm like, okay, I've never heard anything like right. that before. Because right. in this case, the one thing that I'm focusing on right now is the idea that they didn't have to worry about being mistaken because it would have been, it wouldn't even made the 20th page of the newspaper. Right. They would have just exchanged you for Lamar, right. who was the actual killer. Right. Right. And they would have kept it moving. They would have well, had a rightful conviction. And then nobody else would have got shot. And well, we know that's exactly well, what did happen, too. We'll, we'll get to that.
4: Well, let me just say this. I'm a stronger believer in God, I have a strong faith, you know, and I believe that he had a plan for me, you know, and that was my way of rationalizing what happened here and keeping my sanity, you know, because, you know, prison is designed to break the spirit. So um, I knew that God had a plan for me, and he kept me strong, you know. He helped, you know, allowed me to uh, learn a lot, read a lot, educate myself, you know, and that's— I would like to, you know, pretty much um, leave it there, you know, when it comes to trying to figure out why did this happen. The I, I'm I'm going to say. I mean, you can go on and on. I'm just saying, in my mind, you know, I have to keep it as simple as possible to keep my sanity, you know. <laughs> you know, I mean, I it was like a the worst nightmare in the world, you know. And you can't even make a night. You can't even. You can't even uh, put a script together and make a, a nightmare out of this thing. Like, it's—I mean, even when I went to trial, I could have been acquitted, had my lawyer called the witnesses that he
0: promised the jury he would call. That's exactly what I want to get to now because your case, as much as it has some extremely unique um, aspects, it also has some, some characteristics that we see over and over mm-hmm. again in wrongful conviction mm-hmm. cases, and one of them was— the fact that you were represented by a grossly incompetent mm-hmm. public defender. And I'm somebody who has a ton of respect for public defenders. In yeah. fact, if you, anyone who can see that movie Gideon's Promise, you come out of that and you watch it and you go, man, it's, it's a noble profession and there's All a right. lot of people out there busting their ass mm-hmm. for very little money on, a, on a, many hopeless cases, but right. they believe and they want to do the right thing. But there's a lot of public defenders who are out there, and you can't even believe they got out of law school or, or right. passed the bar. I don't even right. understand. And right. you and you got one of those guys. You hit you hit the Maybe. reverse lottery on that one. Right. I mean, <laughs> let me uh, say this: before I even
4: started trial, you know, I was young, but I knew something was wrong. You know, I actually accused him of uh, conspiring with the prosecutor at the time, and this is on the trial record. You know, and the judge told me to. Um, that I should be happy to have such a lawyer, and that oh, we were proceeding forward with the trial. So it's not like 27 years later I'm stating that, you know, this happened to me. No, this
0: is something that I addressed to the court from day one. So. E- so you, as a young man with no experience in criminal justice and no, you didn't have a higher education or no, anything like that, but not you, at all. but and from being inside Just, jail, mm-hmm. you were still able to um, ascertain or or to to surmise that right. this guy was not your friend and was not going to do right. you any good, right? Um, because and that's what a devastating thing that is too, because here you have the one person who's supposed to be your protector mm-hmm. and you can't even trust them.
4: No, well, it's called common sense, you know. Common sense is, um, could be worth all the money in the world, you know, if you use it at the right moment. <laughs> you know, so he hadn't came to visit me but one time for maybe 15, 20 minutes during the whole entire time that he represented me. He hadn't interviewed 90% of the witnesses in the case. So I knew something was wrong there, you know, and I told the judge, you know, the judge disregarded it. You know, not only that, he, you know, he promised that. In fact, in fact, he didn't even give an opening argument. I mean, what lawyer doesn't give an opening argument?
0: So, yeah, I'm trying to envision that, too. So, first of all, let's just get back to 15 to 20 minutes in the course of 10 months, and your life is at stake. Yeah. And that's all the time he's got for you. Yeah. Now, I know it's he's it. busy. He's got a lot of other cases, whatever. But he doesn't have that many murder cases. Right. And I'm sure a lot of the cases were more minor in terms of the, you know, charges. And and you would hope that somebody like him would prioritize a situation like yours. That's the most serious case that there is. But okay, Um, short of a death penalty case. Um, But okay, so...
4: Let me just say this, Jason. You know, in all professions, you have bad people, you know. You have good doctors, you have bad doctors. You know, you have good lawyers and bad lawyers. Good judges and bad judges. And if you get... If you end up with one of those types of people, then it could be disastrous. It can mean your life. And this is just the reality here.
0: That's, I mean, that's well said. But this is, um, I mean, it's hard to think for me that there's the same percentage of doctors. Right. And and there's that big hit podcast out now, Dr. Death, about a doctor who was deliberately killing his (laughs) patients, right? Right. But, or maiming them or whatever is mean, horrible. But I gotta believe those are outliers and most doctors are doing the top, right thing. Yeah, and actually yeah. probably helping their patients, right. you know, more than they're hurting them. And and most lawyers are too. But there's there's too many of these stories about these public defenders who are just not interested, or they're asleep, or they're high, mm-hmm. or they're whatever, mm-hmm. and like and then they get this barred but it's too late and it doesn't matter. I think right. there should be an automatic mechanism that if a Defense lawyer gets disbarred. Their cases, in which they, in which they failed so miserably, mm-hmm. should should get a fresh look. But yeah. you know, well, that's, well, that's another story yeah. for another day. Right. That's not going to happen anytime soon. However, mm-hmm. so your attorney—I don't even know if you want to say his name, but it's up to you. But he didn't even deliver an opening statement.
4: Didn't deliver an opening statement. You know, but he promised the jury during jury selection that he would call witnesses that would clear me. He says, I'm going to call witnesses that's going to tell you that Valentino Dixon didn't do this shooting. The problem is, is that not only did he not give an opening, he didn't call any witnesses, okay? And he asked the judge for advice on what he should tell the jury during his closing summation, because they excused the jury. So the judge, he asked the judge, said, Your Honor, you know, I did promise the jury during jury selection that I would call witnesses that would clear Valentino. I didn't call any What should I do? What should I tell the jury during my closing summation? On the record, the judge says, I don't know what you should do. That's not my responsibility. I can't help you on that. The same judge told me I received a fair trial when we filed a motion some years later to get my conviction overturned.
0: Okay, so just so we're clear, no opening statement, no no witnesses called. No witnesses, not one, not
4: one. And not only that, he didn't introduce one exhibit during the trial. So he didn't in- introduce not one exhibit during the trial. And there was plenty of statements that he could have used to impeach the prosecuted witnesses because it was clear that they were lying, that they were fabricating the story that they gave on the stand. And he could have used their prior statements, the statements that where they said they didn't know who the shooter was, and then came to the trial and said that I was a shooter. He didn't use those. So during deliberations, the jury couldn't even see those pre- previous statements because the lawyer never put not one single exhibit or statement into evidence. I hate to say it, but if I was on the jury, I probably would have convicted you, too. Well, no, listen to this. Years later, what I found out through the Buffalo News uh, paper, they went and interviewed the jury foreman 10 years later. And they said, well, we're looking into this case. You know, can you tell me what happened? The jury foreman says that, and I have the statement, he says that after I was convicted, he went to the judge's chambers and asked the judge, could he speak with him? The judge allowed him to come in. He says, Your Honor, I don't feel right here. Something's not right here. Why didn't the lawyer call the witnesses that he promised? The judge tells the jury foreman to go home, sleep well, don't worry about it.
0: Wow. Go the, home, sleep well, yeah, don't worry don't about, worry about it. it. And now, by the way, the jury foreman was a little late, too, right? I mean, you know, I mean, I, I respect yeah, him for actually 10 years later. Well, 10 years after, yeah. But the, the. Oh, wait, it was 10 years after that he went to see the judge?
4: No, he went to see the judge right after the right. verdict. But we didn't find out till 10 years later that this happened because nobody revealed this.
0: But also, he was late. That's what I'm saying. Like yeah. he, he, he had a chance to actually do something right. in the jury room that would have yeah. actually been meaningful right. as, opposed to doing, as opposed to doing what was convenient. Well, now listen to this. The first vote was a 93
4: not guilty. Wow. He says that. Uh, the sheriff deputy knocked on the door and says, Hey, you guys gotta come back with the verdict within thirty minutes or we're gonna hold you or whatever. And he says a particular woman kept saying, Hey, we just gotta find this guy guilty. I wanna go home. And so everybody swayed her vote and this is how they find end up uh finding me guilty.
0: that's that's really crazy though that the three were able to convince the nine. Ninety
4: three. Ninety three uh not guilty. That was the first vote. Ninety three not guilty. Without yeah, without the lawyer calling any witnesses.
0: Or anything. Right, and or anything.
4: About, and what about the videotape? You,
0: were you now, aware that there was a videotape? Of tape?
4: course. Of course, I, I was aware. That we had the videotape. The, the lawyer never used it at trial. He but, never, the jury never even knew another person confessed in this crime. They kept that afraid, away from the jury. Okay, I'm I'm not even.
0: Right. I can't even. I just. Yeah, the
4: jury never knew that Lamoris guy confessed. We had the videotape. The lawyer didn't use it. He didn't even put it before the jury. He, he didn't bring it to your attention.
0: At all. Did this, you, did you say to him at the time, where's the video? Why are you I, I, calling yeah, witnesses? Of course. And, this what, is
4: when the judge told me to sit down.
0: And what did he say to you, lawyer?
4: He said that we didn't need to present this stuff because they didn't have a case against us. I mean, he said they didn't have a strong enough case, so why we don't need to call in these witnesses? They didn't have a case
0: here. But what is that still doesn't explain the video. The, the videotape. I've watched I, it a of number course, of times. It's of only course. it's only a minute that long. Would've,
4: that would have made all the difference in the world. If the jury would have knew that somebody else confessed. That would I would have walked out of there. But
0: so 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 did you sit there and say to him, "Look, just play the video."
4: I went there and I told him. I asked him, "Was he working with the prosecutor?" You know, I was so angry, and there was nothing I could do. I was powerless.
0: You couldn't get the you couldn't get the no, attorney thrown off because no, I was, he was to, his idea. Couldn't, couldn't,
4: the judge told me, "No, this is all on the trial record. It's right there before my trial even start." Then he turns around and proves me right. You know, I said that he was. You know, up to no good. I knew something was wrong, you know, and I, he actually proved me right. because He didn't call any witnesses, didn't present a, a confession. Jury never knew Lamar Scott confessed.
0: I mean, this is so crazy on so many it's levels. It's criminal, not the least. No, it's, it's criminal. It's, yeah, and then and then Lamar Scott goes out and and kills somebody else, and, and right. actually says right. uh, says again on right. video, "Listen, that guy never would have had to die if they right. would have got me in the first right. place." I mean, he he. Uh, yeah, it's not too many cases like this where somebody, the actual mm-hmm. killer, comes clean so early. Sometimes years and years mm-hmm. later, they have a mm-hmm. religious awakening or a spiritual or right. whatever, or they, or they tell right. somebody, you know, just by accident. Well, his reasoning,
4: is, his reasoning was is that the deceased had a weapon, okay? And the deceased shot a guy named Mario Jarman. Lemoore ran to his defense, okay? And this is what he told them, that, you know, I lost control of the gun, but it was self-defense. I was running to my friend's defense. You know, like it's just you know, this is this is a whole level of madness, but I've lived through it. You know, I've survived the uh, madness, and uh, here we are today. So,
0: and, and yeah, and and amen to that. So, meanwhile, the the jury goes out. How long did they deliberate for? I believe about nine to ten hours. And then they come back in. Did you did you have any hope? Did you? I mean, well,
4: what? well, yeah, I still had hope that I would be acquitted. Of course, you know, and they read the verdict. You know, I blanked out, basically. The family, the whole court was there for me, and they started screaming. You know, it was just a sad scene.
0: Yeah, I heard you describe it and say that you felt like you were in space. I mean, yeah, I just
4: I, at, at that point, I, my mind was just not even here on Earth.
0: No, because basically they gave you a life sentence. I mean, mm-hmm. 39 years when All you're right. 21 years old, that's, right. you know, I mean, mm-hmm. they might as well give you a life sentence yeah. at that point. So, okay, so then you go off and you're taken to prison, um, and you're filing these appeals and everything else.
4: Everything's denied over and over. Keep fighting. You know I started working on my own case. Did a lot of research, learned how to write. You know how to put my facts together, which was very helpful to uh, even the Georgetown students when they got on board. You know that I had already had all the facts laid out, the exhibits to support the facts. So it was a you know it was the process was easier for them.
0: And you were in Attica, right? Which yeah, twenty
4: four is... years. Of about the 27 years, 24 years was spent in Attica.
0: Can you describe that? Because Attica is, of course, a notorious, notorious prison yeah. where they oh. had the, one of the most um, um, devastating mm-hmm. uh, uh, incidents—a uh, riot with, right. with dozens and dozens of people mm-hmm. killed—and that goes back to the uh, 70s, I think. Yeah, but 71. But can you describe for the audience what that was like? Well. When, you know, when I
4: got there, the treatment was horrible, and it stayed that way, you know. And they never did, even after the riots, they never did change the mentality or the attitude of the officers. And to this day, I spoke to some guys yesterday that's in there. They called me on the phone. You know, every day is harassment, you know. It's it's, it's mistreatment going on there every day, and nobody would do anything about it. They're not held accountable, you know. And um, so I feel for them.
0: And were you subjected to that same treatment?
4: I, I had some uh, problems, you know, but uh, I carried myself a certain way where uh, because I knew my situation, that I had to be really, really smart. I was there, but I wasn't there, put it that way.
0: And and that leads to a really interesting I and mean, fascinating part of your story, mm-hmm. which is that you found... Um, some sort of escape from this nightmare To yeah. art, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, and it's it's quite remarkable because. Well, tell the story. I mean, you be, you began drawing. I
4: started drawing when I was about three years old. Okay, and I went to performing arts high school for drawing. And um, when I was arrested, I didn't draw for seven years straight. I didn't touch a pencil or a paintbrush or anything. I didn't have my spirit wasn't it was dead. You know I didn't have to um, drive or any of that stuff you know uh, around the seventh year uh, of being in prison I have an uncle named Ronnie Bryant he sent me some art supplies he begged me to start drawing again you know and even then I kept saying no nah, nah, I'm not interested but eventually he won he you know he won that battle and I started drawing and it was 1997. And so for the, for the next 20 years, I would draw every day, up to ten hours a day, wow. you know, and non-stop. I didn't take off 365 days a year. and it it invigorated my spirit, it, you know it gave me hope. And then when the golf digest came along, you know through the warden, the, the superintendent of Attica, you know, I was known as the artist. And he came by, and he asked me would I draw his favorite golf course. I never golfed before. You know where I'm from. You know we don't golf. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? (laughs) So I said, sure, sure, bring it in. I drew the golf, you know, I think it was the 12th hole of Augusta. And he loved it. My neighbor, uh, a guy named Adam Roberts, he says, hey, you need to draw some more golf course scenes. I said, Adam, no, I'm never going to golf i don't i've never golfed and i don't know anything about the uh game he went and brought me some old um golf digest magazines so i started going through them i started you know looking at the landscaping of everything basically if you take a the pole out you know all all golf courses is, is just a beautiful landscape you know so i said you know what let me give it a try you know i started drawing golf courses every day for the next six or seven months. And then I took a couple of them and I sent them to the Golf Digest magazine with a letter. And uh, that started everything going on that level. You know, the writer Max Allard decided that he wanted to come visit me, and then he did a, a three page article in July 2012.
3: A woo a hand clap a high-fiver. I kind of like the high-five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At ChumbaCasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses, so don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW, avoid, prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime?
0: The whole thing is so remarkable. I mean, and it's interesting, too, because you're drawing three-dimensional yeah. pictures of courses that you were seeing in two dimensions. Right. Right? Right. I mean, because you could only see it in a magazine, <laughs> right? So you're taking life, <laughs> right. a photograph of the real life, and mm-hmm. turning it back into a picture. It's like right. it's a very interesting well, process. Well,
4: let me say this, Jason. After a while, I, I didn't even need the pictures. I could
0: just make up a course on my own. I didn't need the pictures anymore. And, and we know now that uh, it's it's sort of uh, incredible that you're heading out to the West Coast. Uh, tomorrow? Tomorrow to Pebble Beach. Going to, <laughs> <laughs> going to Pebble Beach. Yeah, to man, go, can you imagine that? No, no, no. That's really now that I'm talking about life mm-hmm. imitating art. That's mm-hmm. life imitating art for yes, sure. Yes, it is. Um, but but so back to the story, because so, we'll get to the ending part at the end, which is just an incredible, incredible story to be able to tell. But so now about six years ago, Golf Digest runs the story. Mm-hmm. But the next well the really the, the real the real turning point or tipping point in your whole situation came with a group of students of all things George at Georgetown, Georgetown right? Yeah, Georgetown student. And uh, it's such a personal thing to me because I've been to Georgetown and spoken to that class. Right. Actually, uh, Vice News did a, a piece on, uh, on on the Royal conviction Eviction podcast, and they filmed me okay. talking to the kids at Georgetown. And, and of course, Marty Tancliffe right. who's one of the professors there, is a dear right. friend of mine. He's an exoneree. Right. And I'm a sponsor of the class. Right. So there's so many interesting mm-hmm. connections here that are, uh, you know, it's very serendipitous. But... How did that happen? How did you first find out that these Georgetown kids were? And when you must have, I mean, must have thought, well, well these are kids. Well, how, I mean, how can well, they help me? No, these are undergraduate well, students. Right. Well, Marty worked at a firm as a um, paralegal
4: when he got out. I'm not going to say the name of the firm, but at some point he left the firm, and he had remembered me because he had read a lot of my files.
0: Oh, so you were in prison with Marty?
4: No. Oh. No, uh, Marty was. When Marty got out. He worked as a paralegal at a firm in New York City, okay. who had took my case. They oh, took my case, oh. yeah, they took my case, but they didn't file anything. They pretty much sat on the case when they took it. And after Marty left that firm, he always, you know, just kept me in the back of his head because he had read my file. And even though the lawyers at that firm hadn't moved to file anything, Marty remembered me. And once he went to Georgetown. I believe he presented my story to you
0: and the students. Right. Um, when, when I was there, they were talking about you for sure. Right. And uh, it was, I mean, I got the sense talking to those kids, like there's something special going on here. These mm-hmm. kids are so smart, right? so driven. I hope that every college has a class like that because right. we'll, we can, I mean, look at the difference that they made. You're here. Yeah. Um, so Marty brought it to the kids. Mm-hmm. And then when did you find out that they were actually going to create this documentary footage and and do this whole reinvestigation of your case?
4: uh, Marty called my mother. Okay. He got her number and called her up, and he gave her the news. You know, when I called home, she told me about it. And we had just filed for clemency before that and was uh, denied the clemency. So I was really down. And uh, a couple weeks later, and this is when Marty, out of nowhere, just called my mom up and said, "Hey, you know, we've chosen his case, you know, as a class project, and we're going to do a documentary." So that was like news that I needed to hear. You know, it was it was the best news I had received, and I believe in my whole time since I've been in prison.
0: Wow. So you knew you had a feeling. That... Yeah, because let me
4: just say this. I've had nine different lawyers over the 20-year, 27-year span, nine different lawyers. None of them could uh, even get me a hearing with all of this evidence that wasn't presented before the jury. None of them could even get me a hearing. So when Georgetown got involved, you know, it was like, this is different here. You know, this is different than just hiring a lawyer. You have a whole university that's supporting this. And whenever I would mention to or tell anybody, share it with anybody that Georgetown was involved, you know, you could just—the response was, oh, you, now nah, you're going to go home now. Well, my family felt the same way. I felt the same way. Now it's going to happen.
0: And so the kids went and really reinvestigated. Right. And they found—because the difficulty with your case was—and I'm sure people listening go, going, wait a minute, but the guy confessed. He confessed right. over and over he again. Confessed,
4: he confessed seven times.
0: Seven times we um, have
4: seven different confessions uh-huh
0: right yeah because
4: he wanted to do the right thing so bad and you know he was actually in Attica at one time
0: did you ever see him and he right? put
4: us in the same yard we were in the same yard can you imagine that no yeah, the same yard you know I don't know if it was by design but it was that was crazy within itself you know uh, but it worked itself out did you ever speak to him Oh uh, yeah well he well he approached me. And I didn't want to talk to him at all. I told him to get away from me, you know. And I kind of, you know, God softened my heart up, I don't know, maybe a couple months later. I'm always seeing this guy walk the yard. You know, I said, you know what, you know, he tried to do the right thing, but the police didn't want to hear it. So it's really not his fault when you look at it. And so uh, we became pretty cordial.
0: Interesting. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, hard to even process <laughs> right. that. Right.
4: You know, I, I'm not a—I'm I'm the type of person that, you know, I'm very forgiving and um, I don't harbor stuff. I, I've never been able, you know, to—I've never been the type of person that harbors stuff, you know, a bitter, angry. You know, I forgive real fast, you
0: know. But that's just who I am. So— The Georgetown kids get involved, and the difficulty was, among other things, is that they couldn't use the confession because it wasn't new evidence. Right. So they had to find new evidence in order to get your case reopened. Right. But they did. Yes. Talk about that. Well, the new evidence
4: came in, uh, well, when they took my car and my clothing, they tested it, but they never revealed the results of the testing of the clothing. So when Georgetown was asking the DA, like, you know— what about the testing of his clothing? The DA says, oh, yeah, they, everything was tested and it came back negative. Oh, okay, we got a problem now. Because at sentencing or a trial, you never revealed that this happened. You never presented any document stating that these items came back uh, negative. So that's a clear Brady violation.
0: hmm Okay.
4: And uh, there's nowhere around it because all of this stuff appeared on the record.
0: And the video it, too. And the videotape, awesome. Yeah, I saw that video, and I was like, oh, my God, these <laughs> kids have really done it now. I mean, these, yeah, these, that's right. These are kids. I mean, I'm, right. I, don't wanna, I, yeah. I, I can't emphasize that enough, but they're mm-hmm. great kids. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, they're smart kids. They're going to Georgetown. Right. and You know, that's one thing all Georgetown students have in common. They must have some serious mental fa- mm-hmm. faculties or they wouldn't be mm-hmm. getting in there in the first place. But these kids are really driven, and I can't even imagine how good this must feel for them. I mean, I saw them at the uh, on the day that you were— Freed right, right. and exonerated, and everything. And, mm-hmm. you know, they, they, that's not an experience any of them will ever forget. I mean, I won't even forget it. So, um, and I've been around this stuff for so long. So they get a hold. When did you find out that they had gotten this? Um, it's almost like a confession from the yeah. prosecutor on right? video, right?
4: No, that, that's exactly what it was. And um, so, I, you know, I was in contact with them constantly. You know, I would speak to them on the phone maybe a couple times a week. So when they revealed it to me, you know, I knew that that was the door opener. I said, "This is it right here," because it opens the door for all the evidence that they previously disregarded. Now you have to look at this evidence. It's in, in its totality.
0: Right, because of this. Yeah, because it's that one violation, the Brady violation. And that's and uh, yeah, and there's no there's no equivocating. That's a right. I mean, that was that was a crazy. Yeah, but not th- only that, you know. Um, the DA claimed
4: to not know about all of these witnesses, yet seven of them were on his this, uh, witness list before trial. You know, He says, like, what witnesses are you talking about? Well, those seven witnesses are on your witness list that cleared me of this crime. But he claimed not to know about any witnesses that cleared me.
0: So you find out that the kids had gotten this uh, right. This, like, smoke, you know, call it a smoking there gun. There's yep. a bad, you know, play on words mm-hmm. here, but whatever. But then, and then, mm-hmm. and then how did things start? They must have started to move pretty quickly from now Oh, point. yeah.
4: Within a matter of months, you know, the motion was filed. Uh, the DA said that they wouldn't contest it, you know. But even then, I, I you know, I was like, I wasn't 100% sure that they want to stick to their word. They said, to file the motion, we're knocking contestant. I still didn't trust the process. Of course you not. Know? I can do. And I didn't trust the process all the way up until the day that I got out. When I was walking to, into the courtroom, I didn't trust the process. I didn't know if they were going to do the right thing or not. You just don't know until it actually happens.
0: So um, it happened. <laughs> so let's talk about that, because let's go to yeah. the—we we talked about the worst moment. Um, but there were a lot of them, but the worst moment when you were actually convicted. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about the moment when mm-hmm. this all finally came to an end. All right. I had a lot of time to
4: think that day, because the prison guards would not release me. When the judge ordered me released, the prison guard said no. They wanted to take me back to the prison to be processed out. The judge says no, he's going to be released from the courthouse. So they, it was a tug of war there, and they had to get a fax from Albany stating that it's okay to release him. And that took two hours. So I'm sitting in the room the whole time, my mind is just spinning, and I know all of my supporters and everybody's outside waiting for me. So when I walk out, and I've got to walk down these a lot of steps to get to everybody. And my legs were so weak, you know, I was taking one step at a time because I didn't want to fall down the steps. You know, you know, I, was, I almost felt like I wasn't going to make it down. So I was just taking—if you look at the video, because they have a video of it. i You it. see me taking these tiny little steps because I'm aware, I'm conscious that, you know, well, you're going to fall down these steps because your legs is not not your legs right now. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Cause, cause you're, but I
0: made it down there. But, but you left out what— I really wanted to hear, which is that Mm -hmm. moment when the judge declared you innocent. Oh, yeah. How was, I mean, can you paint that picture? Um, I know you can paint some pictures or draw some pictures. Well, let me
4: just say this. I always had faith, and I always had the hope that that day would come. You know, this is what kept me going, is that I didn't know know when, but I knew it was going to happen. I just didn't know when, because I was never going to give up. I was going to fight until my last breath. So when she declared that, it's like I had already lived it before. It's hard. To, I don't know if that makes any sense. It was like I had already lived it before in my mind, you know. And that's that's what kept me going in prison. Is that ninety percent of the time I was never there. I was on the outside. I, you know, I would take myself to France, you know, or I'd go fishing, or I would cook a dinner or something like that. I was never really there in the prison. Only maybe ten percent of the time when I had to be when there was something going on and I needed to know what was going on around me. Other than that, my mind, whenever I would draw for those 10 hours, I would put my headphones on, turn the music on, and I'm gone.
0: And, and just draw. But, but yeah. even still, what was the... the, the you're in the courtroom. I mean, this is the this is actually the opposite of what happened before, right? When everybody right. was screaming and crying right. and everything else, and you were in space and the blah, blah, blah. Right. So now you're back right in the courtroom. And right. the judge says...
4: You know what, I'm going to be honest with you, I was in I was in space then, again. A different type of space, though.
0: <laughs> and I'm assuming pandemonium erupted oh, in the no, courtroom. Oh, no, it did. It did. I mean, it's interesting because I've seen the video, and anyone who wants to can go online and just Google your yeah, name, Valentina but let me Vincent. just say
4: this also, um, Jason, you know, it was a happy day for me and the family and everything, but at the same time, I knew I was leaving behind so many people that's going to need my help, you know, that's going to need my voice because they don't have uh, the avenue, you know, or anybody to advocate for them. So at that moment, I was really thinking about them and what I needed to say to the media, you know, to get the balls rolling as far as as in regards to uh, the harsh sentencing laws in New York State.
0: So it's a little bit bittersweet.
4: Yeah, you know, because I knew that, you know, okay... Now, here's a new chapter that's going to begin, you know, and it's not a, you know, it's, it's really not about me now. It's about trying to save other people, you know, from being wrongfully convicted or, or receiving these higher sentencing laws, you know, that's in New York State.
0: Yeah, I mean, when we talked about that earlier, the, the fact that we are so out of step with the rest of the Western world mm-hmm. in terms of the way we sentence people, in terms of the way we punish people. Right. I mean... A great group, including my friend Dan Slepion, just just toured the prisons in Norway and Germany. They have a total of eight uh, um, 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 solitary confinement cells right. in, in the whole country of Germany, right. and they don't even use them. Right? Right. We have, uh, I think it's eighty to 100,000 people in solitary in America, mm-hmm. in solitary confinement. Yeah. They have eight for the whole country. I know
4: guys that spent
0: nine years in
4: solitary confinement.
3: Chumba. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Full by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote.
0: Talk to me a little bit about family because um, your daughter's here. Mm -hmm. Amazing, beautiful woman that she is. Um, I've seen uh, videos with um, some of your family members, your mom. Right um how important was family to you during this whole situation and what and what does it mean well, to now?
4: family is everything you know without their support i wouldn't be sitting here right now you know we kept each other strong you know whenever they were down i lifted them up whenever i was down they lifted me up you know now is you know you know even getting out you know my grandmother i've spent the last two weeks you know trying to get her house right her basement had flooded and stuff molded and everything so me and a buddy of mine ripped out all the walls and resealed the basement up and you know just fixed her she's 90 years old you know and you know i got her a new couch set and kitchen set and stuff like that and painted all the all outside of the house and all this stuff you know so she was my top priority you know now it's going to be my mom and did my my kids, my
0: grandkids,' you have five
4: generations ago, yeah, yeah, you know, and That's um, a lot of dixons for me,' it's, you know it's not you know when something like this happens, you realize how precious life is, you know, and that tomorrow's not promise, so you have to live every moment as if it's your last, and, not, and even when you don't have money to travel, it's little things that you can do like making breakfast, you know, and watching a movie take A walk in the park, things that don't cost any money, you know. And I didn't understand this before, but I do now. So every day, every chance that I get, we're gonna have a moment.
0: And you have three girls,
4: I have four girls. Wow, yeah, I have four girls, and um, names Jackie, uh, Tina, Ariana, and Tiara. Mm-hmm. But Tina's been the main um focus here because um. She was doing a lot of advocacy work for me online and through her college. You know, she's a school teacher, graduated from Outer Bean College in Columbus, Ohio. And so she's been out there pushing things, you know. You know, like really pushing hard. She was pushing when she was in college. And you know, them came along so it just made everything a lot better and easier for us.
0: Yeah, I mean, I've seen videos of her uh, advocating for you Mm -hmm. so powerfully and and such a beautiful speaker she is and just a a really amazing uh, soul from what I can tell. Yeah,
4: no doubt. She's just like, she's so humble and soft-spoken and she loves her kids. She knows all their names. She, You know, she spends special time with the kids. I mean, she's like one of the greatest
0: teachers on the planet. Mm Mm-hmm. I can see how proud you are mm-hmm. of her, and I'm proud of her, too. I mean, for right. your kids to have to—because, of course, when a, when we talk about this a lot, when someone like yourself is wrongfully convicted, it's not just you. Right. I mean, it's your I mean, kids. mean, they suffered. Yeah, they grew up without their dad. Yeah. And they could have easily gotten on the wrong track and ended up mm-hmm. behind bars, too. Yeah. But they've managed to persevere somehow, and they've all, managed to— All of them, right. Yeah, not just persevere, but but succeed right. and excel. Yeah. yeah, Yeah, that's a miracle, right? That is a miracle. You and, know, but
4: every chance I, I could, every chance I had, I wrote them. We talked on the phone, you know. And I know that what, I, what I've observed is that, you know, you have parents that's out there that— A lot of times they don't take the opportunity to to spend time or speak to their kids about the world and different things like that. So I took the opportunity to constantly write and speak about life, everything, just give them as much wisdom as I could on the telephone and through a letter.
0: Well, more power to you. I mean, I think it's it's a great tribute to you, the fact that they have turned out, to them too. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not taking any credit from them, but I think that, we cannot downplay the role that you played in your own um, um, your own uh, freedom and right, right. getting freedom for yourself, right. and um, and then also the the, the family side is just it's a beautiful story. I mean, it's a tragic story, mm-hmm. but it's a beautiful story, and now it's about to get better because you're off to right. Pebble Beach, over <laughs> to the golf courses that you painted yeah. in your mind and and, and on yeah. the ca- and on the paper and on the right. canvas and everything else. And we have some of your artwork here; it's phenomenal. Mm-hmm. So. This is my favorite part of the show. Um, but we have a tradition here at Wrongful Conviction, which okay. is that as we get to the, you know, to the end of the episode, I like to just thank you, um, our featured guest, our honored guest, uh, Valentino Dixon, uh, 27 years in and 29 days out. Right. I and mean, it's incredible to have you here uh, so, so soon after your exoneration. Um, but this is the part of the show where I get to stop talking and just listen. Okay. And so what I'd like to do now is just turn the microphone over to you. I want to thank you again for being here and for everything that you're doing. I'm excited to get to know you better and to watch you, you know, make your mark in the world. Right. And uh, get to know your family and everything else. So, again, one, it's been a great experience for me. Thank you for coming. And now I'm turning it over to you for your last thoughts on any subject you want to talk about.
4: Well... <laughs> We have to, you know, make prison reform a serious topic to be discussed, you know. And we have to inform the public. Most people that don't have anybody in prison don't know what's going on in regards to the unfairness and how the judicial system operates. You know, that um, if you're poor, you know, most of the time you're not going to receive a fair trial because the system is not designed or equipped to give you a fair trial. You know, and my goal is to reach out to prosecutors, judges, and um, politicians, you know, to get them to, you know, deep, you know, reach deep down into their soul, the greater part of their soul, you know, and to have this care and this compassion and this concern for those outside of your group, you know, because most prosecutors and judges, my experience has been that they don't really focus or care about those outside of the group, you know. And, you know, I want to be able to bridge that gap. And because we're all human beings, you know, and we all make mistakes. You know, but, you know, like I was telling you earlier, like, we're the humanity, you know. And, you know, we can speak about mass incarceration all day long, you know, until our eyeballs pop out. But at the end of the day, we need to come down with a solution and we need to do something about it you know, sentencing laws is the worst, we have some of the worst sentencing laws in the, in the world, in the country, especially in New York state, you know, and um, there's bills on the table that um, should be passed. We should, you know, politi- you know the politicians no longer overlook these, uh, these bills that's on the table or the problems that's uh, concerning, you know, um, minorities. You know, and I hate to make it a race issue, You know, you know, I hate to make it a race issue, But um, just imagine this. And when I was speaking with the governor's people uh, two weeks ago, I asked them, I said, can you imagine if uh, young black guys were going off to college and uh, getting jobs and young white guys were going off to prison? Can you imagine this? You can imagine this because the problem would be a fix immediately, you know, and because, you know, 70-something percent of minorities— that's locked up in New York State in these prisons, you know, and um, we just have to, you know, Martin Luther King said it best, you know, he said people are uh, victims of intellectual and spiritual blindness, they know not what they do, that even those slave owners that own slaves were not evil or bad people, they were just motivated by greed. You know, and when I look at, you know, what's going on with our prison system, the mass incarceration, you know, it's jobs and it's greed. And it's a certain class of people that receive these benefits. And it's devastating for minorities across the country. You know, so I just think that, you know, as human beings, we need to look at it from that, from that perspective. And um, and make some changes fast, not five or ten years from now, but now. And it's only right, you know, when you look at in comparison to other countries. You know, we can learn from Norway. You know, we can learn from England. You know, uh, a 10-year sentence over here, a lot of cases, is six months in England. <laughs> you know, and it, it's not even close. So we know that they're not going to change the system as far as getting rid of the judges and the prosecutors, et cetera, et cetera. So guess what we can do here to make it a lot more just, Reduce the sentencing laws. That's it. Reduce the sentencing laws. The mentality is not going to change. You know, you either, you know, you, you have a good heart or you have a heart that's not so good or you have a bad heart. So, you know, the mentality is not going to change. These people in the system are already set in place. You're not going to remove these people. You're not going to change the guards, the judges, the prosecutors. The so only thing you can do to, to make this right is to reduce these sentencing laws across the board. That's it.
0: I't leave on that note. And on that note, I just want to say that uh, I've been working with families against mandatory minimums mm-hmm. for twenty five years. right Um it's a wonderful organization. I mm-hmm. hope people will take what your words and right. go and get involved. You can go to f a m m that's f like frank a m m mandatory minimums dot right. org right. fam dot org learn more about this issue, let's get this country back on track and, and get back in step with the rest of the Western world and stop treating our people the way we, the way we do in, in terms of locking them up forever.
4: And let me just say this, uh, Jason, one more thing, right? Where I come from, I come from the worst part of my city, Buffalo, New York, okay, whereas it's, it's an economic uh, collapse. There's no jobs, there's poverty, there's drugs, there's illegal weapons, you mm-hmm. know, uh, and these kids don't feel like they have options. And at the end of the day, what do you think is going to happen in these type of environments? You know, most of these kids are either going to go to jail or they're going to get killed. And that's just the reality here, you know. So the only way to change that is government funding, you know, job, better jobs, schooling, housing, you know, to these uh, underdeveloped areas where there there aren't any factories in the inner city, you know, where, you know, the globalization and the industrialization has changed the the, the the infrastructure of America. You know, we have to bring jobs back. You know, when you bring jobs back, you see a whole totally different society as a whole, especially in the inner city. That's the main issue. People really want to work, you know, if given the opportunity and given a, 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 a decent job, you know, because the minimum wage jobs is just not enough to, to cover people's living expenses. It's is just not enough. So people resort to other things. And then you have to look at the the mental uh, issues that we're dealing with in America. You know, a person's background, you know, uh, the history of the person. You know, we have to take into consideration all of these things before we decide to give a person 30 or 40 years. You know, and I think this is where the compassion, the empathy, the sympathy, you know, the love for your fellow human being comes in at.
0: All right, now I'm done. <laughs> uh, yeah, it sounds like you need to be running for office is what you need to be doing because you have a lot of, uh, I mean, you have a lot of knowledge, a lot of wisdom, and, and, and you obviously have a great heart and, and, a, and a strong desire to reform the system and help other people in the situation you're in. Somewhere. Oh, can I just say one more thing? Yeah.
4: Okay. Um, How can I put this without offending anybody? You know, uh, people always ask me about Black Lives Matter, okay, and my message to a Black Lives Matter would be: is to not um, isolate anyone, to not push anyone away, to bring everybody on board. Okay, and Martin Luther King was the best that ever did it. Without, without um, Caucasians or non-white or non-blacks, Civil Rights, 1964 Civil Rights Act wouldn't have been passed. You know, without non-whites, Barack Obama would never been president. Slavery would never end it, you know. So until we put the eagles aside and learn to work together collectively, you know, we're not going to get anything done. Okay, now
0: I'm finished. Um, We've uh, (laughs) uh, been—what can I even say? uh, All I can say is, uh, uh, Valentino, thank you again for being here. You've been listening to uh, Wrongful Conviction with uh, our very, very special guest, Valentino Dixon, today. And thank you for thank you for listening. Tune in again next week. Don't forget to give us a fantastic review wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps. And I'm a proud donor to the Innocence Project, and I really hope you'll join me in supporting this very important cause and helping to prevent future wrongful convictions. Go to innocenceproject.org to learn how to donate and get involved. I'd like to thank our production team, Connor Hall and Kevin Wardis. The music in the show is by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at wrongfulconviction and on Facebook at wrongfulconvictionpodcast. Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom is a production of Lava for Good Podcast in association with Signal Company Number 1.
1: Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry.